Good morning, church. My name is Josh. I'm on staff here at Austin Oaks Church. I just want to say welcome. If this is one of your first times tuning in, thanks for choosing to be with us here this morning. Uh, We want to let you know that here at Austin Oaks Church, we are simply about Jesus. Hopefully you've seen that in the songs that we've sung this morning, and hopefully you'll see that uh, when we dive into the Bible here today, that it really is simply about Jesus. And our mission here as a church is so that you would meet, know, and follow him. So uh, if you know anything about me personally, um, about a month and a half ago, actually I think today is the seventh week, um, my wife and I had our third child. Um, and so I've only been back at work here for a few weeks, at least what it feels like with all the, you know, time warp kind of things, depending on, uh, you know, where you're at in life with a new baby or with the current pandemic that's going on. But, uh, I digress. I was trying to be a bit of a better husband last week and just to check in on my wife, right? Cause she's got a newborn baby in one arm and then two young kids under the age of five running around in all their craziness going on. So I sent her a text message. I just wanted to see, you know, how she's doing throughout the day. Baby steps, right? You kind of uh, just see how I could uh, help her a little bit more and see how she's doing. So I asked her how she's doing and she sent me back a single word reply. It's a four letter word that begins with the letter F and that word is fine. Okay. So if you were to receive a text message, just a single word, fine. How would, what do you think uh, she's actually trying to say? Well, I knew my wife and um, it's pretty obvious that by using that word, she wasn't saying that she was having a great day. And to exemplify the point, I even looked up on dictionary.com. What does the word fine mean? It means of superior or best quality, of high or highest grade, choice, excellent or admirable. And I knew when I got that text message that she was not saying her day was of superior quality. So I texted her back, I asked her, um, you know, that sounds kind of ominous, what do you mean by that? And she said, she replied again, just a few words, oh, it's been a day. And once again, if you go by kind of the dictionary definition of those words, it seems, uh, well, it doesn't really seem to mean much of anything, it's been a day. But we kind of understand that those words are actually saying something a little bit more than their dictionary definitions. And in fact, later on in the day when I got home, we talked about it and all the craziness that my kids got into in the backyard um, that I will not share with you this morning because I think it's a little bit inappropriate for a Sunday morning. But if you're interested, feel free to reach out to either me or Samantha and we can fill you in on all the gory details of what happened. But all that to say is that we tend to use words. uh, Sometimes the words or the concepts that we use have different meanings depending on the context in which they're said. Um, So for instance, if I were to come up to you and I said, he's not gonna make it, how how would you take that? What what does that mean? Well, besides, uh, you know, probably thinking that I'm absolutely insane because it doesn't mean anything by itself, Let's, let's put that in a different context and let's see if we can understand it, right? So say you're watching football, okay? The kicker goes in at the 40-yard line to uh, hit a field goal and someone says, he's not gonna make it. Well, it's pretty obvious what you mean there. Uh, or say you're a nerd like me and you're watching YouTube and you watch a video game speed run and someone says, he's not gonna make it. Okay, I think we understand what it means there. Uh, well, what if your bedside with a loved one who got a cancer diagnosis? and the doctor says, he's not gonna make it. 
Oh. Sorry for getting so dark so early. Um, but the same words can carry more weight to them. They can have this emotional depth to them depending on the context in which they're given. And the same is true, especially words that are written, right? The text message that I received from my wife, I couldn't get any body language from that. I didn't know her tone. I just had to kind of read into that. And I want to warn you as, y- as you read the Bible, as you take a look at the scripture, we need to remember what the context of the Bible is. Otherwise, it's so easy to misunderstand what it's saying, especially when we're taking a look at some difficult passages of scripture. Um, so what is the context of the Bible? Well, we as sinful humans could never grasp at who God is, right? We can't fully understand who God is without him showing us who he is. And that's what he's done through the scripture, through the way that he's interacted with humanity throughout history. He is revealing who he is, what he likes and what he doesn't like, and what he calls us to. So the greater context of all of the Bible is God showing us who he is. So when we come to difficult passages, we can remember to ask ourselves, Who is God in this? What is he showing himself to be through this passage? So there's a greater context of the Bible, but there's also the context of the book that we find ourselves in. So this series we've been going through all through the summer has been in the book of Ephesians, which was originally a letter written to the church in Ephesians by the Apostle Paul. And uh, the, the chapters and verse numbers weren't actually added for hundreds of years later, just so we could reference what we're talking about. Paul just wrote this as a letter, and so he has a certain uh, flow of thought throughout the entire letter, right? And so when we take it out in just chunks, it's a lot easier to misunderstand where Paul is coming from. Um, so what is the context of Ephesians as a letter? Well, uh, the first half of the book is talking about this new life in Christ, right? It's talking about how we were dead in our sin and how God has made us alive, how he's brought us into his family. We were dead and God's grace and love has poured out on us and made us alive in him. He gives us power and he gives us purpose. He unifies us, right? He destroys the barrier between man and God and brings us in. And then he destroys any barriers and divisions between mankind and mankind. He calls us all his family and brings us in together. We're unique people, but we have a unified purpose as the church to glorify God, to love others, right? And so that's the first half of the book. And the second half of the book where we find ourselves today is talking about how then we should live because of what God has done for us. Because God has so loved us and made us alive, now this is what we are to do. So the second half of the book doesn't make sense unless you remember the first half of the book. It's not just a bunch of commands that God gives, like do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. He's saying, this is who you are. You are filled with my love, and therefore, as new creatures in Christ, this is how you ought to live. So that's the context of um, the 
the letter of Ephesians itself. Let's take a look just to remind you real quickly, sorry I'm giving so much context here, of um, last week and what Brandon was talking about, just chapter five of Ephesians. A few verses I just wanna highlight here. Chapter five starts out and Paul says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, right? So again, he's saying, you are loved by God. Therefore, what you ought to do, not just do this, do this, do this. Really, all this is, is be like God. Be an imitator of God and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, right? We are dearly loved children. And so, because that's who we are, this is how we ought to walk. And guess what? The picture that God gives and how we ought to walk is his son, Jesus. What he calls us to do, he went first. He led us and showed us what that looked like through Jesus, who came to earth and lived that perfect life. Um, So jumping down through uh, verse 18, don't get drunk with wine for that's debauchery. Be filled with the spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart. I don't know about you, but the times when I feel like singing are the times when I am just overcome with emotion, right? And it just, it just pours out in song. And, and that's what Paul is saying here. Be filled with the Spirit and sing to one another. Make melody in your hearts to each other. And he goes on and saying, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So see, the context of where we're going today is Paul saying, you are loved by God. You have this, we have this um, unimaginable joy. It's, it, it's not a happy-go-lucky kind of always having a smile on your face. It is this deep abiding joy that expresses itself in song and in thankfulness to God. So out of this love, this joy, this thankfulness, now we come to today's portion of the text here in verse 21, where Paul says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, right? We revere Christ because of the love that he's shown us, this joy that we have inside of us. Because of that, we revere Christ, and that shows itself in how we submit to others. So the the foremost relationship here is our relationship with God, our relationship with Christ, that we're, we're, we're growing with Christ, we're, we're spending time with him, we're learning more about him, and out of that, it allows us to submit ourselves to others. Um, I have to give one more point of context, okay? I, I apologize for being a bit of a, a broken record here, um, but like We talked about in the beginning when we have these ideas of the words that we use. um, There there are contexts that we find ourselves that define our words that come from our culture, right? There's a cultural context of using certain words. And there's a word that Paul uses here and throughout the the passage that we're going to be looking at today that can bring with it certain connotations that are incorrect. And uh, that word is submitting and submission. So often we think of uh, domination, right? Of holding someone down and forcing them to submit. But that's not at all what Paul is talking about here. See, that idea of what submission is 
comes from our own, whether it's personal experiences or just culture around us, this is kind of what we think of when we hear the word submission. It happens with a lot of different words that we use, right? Um, Especially with names. If I were to say to you the name Tom Cruise, what do you think of? Do you think of action movies? Do you think of Jerry Maguire? Or do you think of Scientology? Right? All of those are legitimate. Those are aspects of his life, but they're very different aspects of who he is. Uh, let's try it with someone else. How about Jim Carrey? Right? Are you thinking of Ace Ventura and comedy? Or are you thinking of The Truman Show and Existential Crisis? Are you thinking of a guy with a big beard who uh, went through a public crisis and depression? Are you thinking of the paintings that he posts on social media? You know, depending on who you understand these people to be, um, it gives you these other kind of connotations. And those are all completely valid. In fact, if I said those names and you didn't even know who I was talking about, you didn't think of anything, that's valid too, because you don't know. It's based on our personal experiences. So when Paul says, submit, We have to recognize that we have our own ideas of what that means when we come to the scripture. And we need to seek out what Paul is saying, not what we think that he's saying. Um, Because words like submit automatically put us on the defensive. Um, So what does it actually mean to submit? Well, it means to place yourself under someone else or to elevate someone over yourself. Um, It is not domination. It is allowing yourself to not be proud, right? It's not this, this sense of pride when you're around other people. It's not living by your own agenda, but by those of others. It's putting others' preferences before your own. Paul talks about this in uh, Philippians chapter two. Let's go there. Uh, Starting in verse two, he says, Um, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So when Paul talks about submission, he's referencing Christ. When God calls us to submit, he's saying this is what it looks like. It looks like living the way that Christ lived. He doesn't just call us to it, he shows us. He leads us by giving us this picture of how Christ lived, right? He's not calling us to do something that he wouldn't do himself. He did it through Christ. He has shown us what submission looks like. It looks like a life of sacrifice. You know, uh, Brandon talked about a couple weeks ago how we tend to live the bib life and how it's all about us. And what submission does is it lives the life of the towel, uh, like he talked about Jesus, how he puts others first, how he serves others. Even though Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, he submitted himself 
to, uh, to the needs of those around him. And that's what submission is. Submission is given out of joy. It is not demanded by those in authority. And submission says that in my relationship with Christ, in the love that he gives me, I have everything that I need. So I don't need my preferences. Yeah, I'm gonna put you first. I'm gonna say you are, uh, your needs, your wants are above my own because everything I need, I have in Christ. That's what submission is. And humble submission is the attitude of the Christian. Since you've been made alive in Christ, right? Everything that's come before in Ephesians, because of that love, because you are now alive, now we submit out of reverence to Christ. We can submit to each other. So that's what this word, this term submission means. And we're gonna be taking a look at it a lot in today's passage, um, which is uh, chapter five, verse 22, through chapter six, verse nine. So it's a nice chunk of scripture. Um, So let me pray and then we'll go ahead and read this passage. Lord, as we come to you this morning, we recognize how loving you are, how great you are. Lord, as we turn to your word, we pray that it would change us. We pray that it would show us who you are so that we can be imitators of God as dearly beloved children. Uh, Help us to submit to you because you are our authority, knowing how kind you are, how good you are, and how loving you are. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so starting in verse 22, it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, for this is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. So that's a big chunk. Uh, We're taking a look at three different examples of relationships in which, uh, this is Paul saying, 
this is who you are, this is how you live in submitting to each other because of your relationship with Christ. And here's practically how it works out. These are very common relationships. I want to address this third one first simply because of what I talked about earlier, these cultural connotations that come along with some of the words that Paul uses, okay? Um, in, my, in the version of the Bible that I'm using, the English Standard Version, this last section talks about bondservants and masters. If you have a different version of the Bible, that word bondservant might have been translated as the word slave, Now, I need to be absolutely clear on this, that what Paul is talking about here is not the same type of American chattel slavery. The Bible does not condone that type of slavery. In fact, it condemns it very harshly. Okay, I've got um, a verse from Exodus, chapter 21, verse 16 says, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. So the death penalty was invoked for anyone involved in that type of slavery. So as we read this, know that that's not what Paul is talking about here. Paul knows that that type of slavery uh, deserves death. So he's not condoning slavery. So again, my version of the Bible uses this word bondservant. And um, the connotations with that. I mean, just take a look at the word itself. It is a servant who binds himself to another for a specific purpose. And generally, this was for paying off a debt or some other contractual obligation, right? So um, I bought a house here in Austin about six years ago. I am a bond servant. I have bound myself to my uh, lender, (laughs) because it's the biggest debt that I have ever incurred in my life. And because of that, I have agreed that I'm going to pay every month, month in and month out, a specific amount. I I, I have bound myself with that contract. And that's more of the connotations. It's more like the employee and employer type of relationship, a contracted um, obligation that two people enter into. Uh, It may be a little bit stronger than just an employee and an employer, but that's still the idea of what Paul is trying to get across when he talks about bondservants and masters, that there is work to be done and it is done in exchange for an agreed upon sum. And you can see this even in what Paul says about it, right? Um, In verse nine, he's talking to masters, so the employer in this relationship. He says, uh, stop your threatening, right? He doesn't say stop your abuse and stop treating uh, these people as if they were your property because that's not what's going on here. It's not an abusive uh, slavery relationship. It is a contractually obligated relationship. And what Paul is saying is that, yes, you may be the authority in this situation. You may be the person with the money, but don't insinuate that you can change the terms of the contract just because you are the authority or don't use your position of authority to lord over your contracted workers, right? Paul sees both parties in this relationship as people, not as property. And in addition to that, uh, it it even talks about, right, that um, the master who is in heaven, he's both your master and their master, right? You are both human. 
He is God of all. There is no value difference. In fact, with God, there is no partiality. Just because you have more money, just because you're an authority, does not mean that you have any more value than those that you're managing, that you're overseeing, that you're leading. God sees you both as equals in this relationship. You are just partnering in this employee-employer type of relationship. And again, in the context of what Paul is saying, this is a joyful partnership, right? Paul was just talking about how much uh, love that we have because of what Christ has done for us, the joy that we have in singing to one another, um, the thankfulness that we have to God. And out of that, we're free to enter into these joyful partnerships. And it, you can even see that in the way that he talks to the bond servants, right? To serve your earthly masters with a sincere heart as you would Christ that your relationship with Christ is foremost. And out of that, you're able to do your best work. You're able to go above and beyond for your employer. Not as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God, rendering service with good will to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, that God is going to bless you for the good work that you're doing because you're focused on your relationship with him, not just your relationship with your employer. Um, and again, to the masters, what he says uh, to the employers, to the managers, to the leaders, what he says is um, that knowing that he is both their master and yours is in heaven, that there's no partiality with him, that God is your master as well. Even though you're in this place of leadership, this leadership is stewarded to you. And uh, the, the term steward, uh, it's kind of a churchy word, right? I think I've only ever heard it in the context of church. And what it means is that it is someone who is ruling in place of another. So um, if you've read or if you've watched The Lord of the Rings, there's a character in there, his name is Denethor. He is the steward of Gondor. He is ruling in place of the king of Gondor and he doesn't wanna give up his rule. Um, there's, a, there's a really poignant scene. Um, it, well, if you remember who Denethor is, he kinda looks, the actor who plays him kinda looks like Ozzy Osbourne. Um, he's Boromir and father, Faramir's dad. And there's a scene in The Lord of the Rings where you really get to see his character. Um, it, one of the hobbits comes out and he's singing this song while Denethor is eating. And it's this very hopeful song knowing like his friends are in the midst of the battle, but they're persevering. And you see Denethor, he's just hunched over his meal. He's ripping apart his, this, the meat that he's eating. He just looks absolutely ruthless. At one point, he takes this cherry tomato and pops it in his mouth and it just spurts all over his food. It's, it's, it's ugly and disturbing. And you see that that's who he is because he doesn't want to give up his authority as a steward. He doesn't want to recognize he's ruling in the place of someone else. So yeah, I'm a nerd. I had to make a Lord of the Rings reference. Don't be like Denethor. If you find yourself in a place of authority or leadership, it is stewarded to you by God. God is our master. He is our first and foremost relationship. And out of that, you can serve those people that you lead. You can even submit to those that you lead by putting them first, putting their needs first, by, by seeking their uh, best and pulling out their potential in the midst of this, this partnership that you find yourself in. Um, so now that I've gotten completely carried away with this third example, let's take a look at the other two examples. So again, this is Paul 
saying and showing practical application of what he's been saying, of this love and this joy and this thankfulness that we have in Christ, and this is how it's lived out. Um, now, we can't get into every nuance and detail this morning. As you've seen, I've already been talking for quite a while, so <laughs> forgive me for that. Um, maybe you can bring out some more of these details in your small group. Um, but there are things I, I just can't look into today. But I do recognize that these verses can be abused, especially when you take them out of their context. And growing up in the church, I've heard ways in which these, verse, these verses have been used to abuse people. So I just have to give the reminder, remember what Paul is saying. Remember that this is out of love. Remember that submission is joyfully given and not uh, taken. It is not domineering. So as we look back on this first example in marriage, the relationship between wives and husbands, verse 22 says, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Uh, again, there is no break here. Paul is writing a letter. So this comes directly after verse 21, right? Where he says, we submit to one another I out of reverence for Christ. And so he's saying, this is the first example. Wives, you submit to your husbands. This is how you live this out, this joyful love that God has given you. Here's one way you can do it in your relationship with your husband. Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, your husband is not your Lord. He's saying, remember your relationship with God, and because of that, now you can submit to your husband. Uh, going on, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, it's pretty obvious, but I'm just gonna go ahead and say it. Husbands are not the saviors of their wives. That's not what Paul is saying. What he is saying is that just as Christ is head of the church, the husband is the head of her wife. And so what does that mean? Well, he explains it, that, that Christ is the savior of the church. Well, how did Christ save his church? He came to earth. He entered into humanity. He served the church. He loved the church. He gave himself up for the church. He lived 33 years, a sinless, perfect life in relationship with God, loving others perfectly. That is how he saved his church. And then he laid down his life, like it said in Philippians. He humbled himself so much that he died on a cross. That is how Jesus saved his church. So when it talks about Jesus's relationship with his church and, uh, and uses the idea of this husband-wife relationship, it's saying this is how the husband is the head of the wife. He gives his life. He serves just as Jesus has served. And Paul goes into that later as well. Even though he started by talking to wives, he actually has a lot more to say to husbands and how they ought to um, how they ought to lead in this relationship. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That's another word that can mean a thousand different things, um, but Paul defines it by Christ's love. You know, I said when we started that we are simply about Jesus. That's because the scripture is simply about Jesus. This is pointing us towards the love of Christ. Show the love of Christ in this relationship. How Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and blameless. Husbands, we, we can't sanctify our wives. Jesus does that. 
but what we can do is we can seek their sanctification, right? As we lead, we are to call out the best in her, right? We are to seek out what is best. We are to lay down our lives um, in practical terms. Are you talking to your wife about what you're learning in the scripture? Are you sharing with her and calling her higher? Uh, it's, it's easy, it's so easy. Uh, if, you, if you work a nine to five kind of job just to, to get home at the end of the day and just veg, right? Because you're tired. But are you taking the time to seek out the absolute best for your wife? Not the easiest, not the thing that seems the most simple that's gonna please her all of the time, but what is best for her. It takes work. You have to know your wife in order to know what that looks like. Um, and Paul here talks about one way of doing that, washing her with the water of the word. That's a very poetic way of saying, are, y- are you leading her back to scripture? Are you speaking life into her the way that God speaks life into us through the scripture? Uh, it's, a, it's a high calling. This, these are... This is what the ideal husband-wife relationship looks like. You can ask my wife. I don't fulfill this. Uh, it kind of goes without saying that we are sinful people. Um, and insofar as we don't uh, fulfill this, w- we can see the damage that it does. And again, I'm, I, I can't go into all of that uh, today, but this is the ideal, the loving relationship that God calls us to, that calls us heavenward. Paul says that this mystery is profound. And I'm saying it refers to Christ in the church, right? This relationship in marriage, the husband-wife relationship, it's used when we fulfill it insofar as we are loving one another and submitting and leading in service and submitting our wants and desires for the good of our spouse, our wife and our husband, insofar as we're doing that, we actually get to reflect the love that Christ has for his church to others. We're showing others how much God loves us. What an amazing calling. What a high calling that we get to see. Um, so the, the other example that we're taking a look at here is children and parents, and this is the shortest example, but there are a few things here that we want to go over just really quickly. Okay, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Again, Paul is saying this comes from your relationship with God. Out of that, you submit to the authority and you obey your parents, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. It's the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you. Um, That obedience and submission, it brings a blessing with it. God blesses that submission. When you submit to the authority in your life, God blesses that. Um, And then he addresses fathers, um, those in authority over their children, um, and, you know, fathers, parents, both here. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And the, the term that Paul uses here, um, the cultural connotation of the term, is it's this word paideia, and it um, brings with it, it, it's a huge word. It has a lot of different implications. It means instruction towards creating an ideal citizen. So in the case of Rome, it would be the ideal citizen of Rome. Um, But as I was studying a little bit what this word means, take a look at this with me. It is the whole training and education of children for the cultivation of the mind and morals, including the training and care of the body, 
and cultivating the soul, especially by correcting mistakes and curbing passions, and instruction which aims at increasing virtue. So there is a lot wrapped up into this. Education of the mind, of virtue, of morals, even of your body as well. This is a huge calling. Um, and in context here, uh, this is what it means to lead and to have authority, right? If Paul is using these examples to show what submitting to others looks like, this is what leadership looks like. It means seeking the good of those who've been placed under you. If, if you, are if you are have an authority, if you're managing people, if you're leading people, um, if people are submitting to you, you ought to seek the absolute best for them in their mind and morals and virtue and body. All of this in, is encapsulated here in this term that Paul uses. So when he talks about uh, leadership and submission, he's saying, look, out of love, we submit to one another. And when you find yourself in a place of leadership, you are to seek the absolute best for those who are under you, especially your children. And just like Jesus, you go before them in your leadership. Leading means to be out in front, right? You show them what this looks like. Not only in this parent and child relationship are you educating them, you are living this out. You are giving them a picture, just like Christ has given us a picture of what it looks like to love God perfectly. We are giving our children a picture of what it looks like to be an ideal citizen of heaven. And when we lead others, we're giving them a picture of what it looks like to love God. So now that we've looked at all of these different examples, um, I want to end by just pulling out a few, um, a few ideas that Paul gets at here, right? Sometimes it's hard to see the forest through the trees of each of these different examples. And um, in broad strokes, I think one of the things that Paul is talking about here is that authority in general in our world is put in place by God and authority is actually a good thing, right? When it reflects God, um, it is good. Authority is not inherently bad. I think in our culture nowadays, especially with a lot of the things that we see going on right now, um, people automatically assume that anyone in authority, they, they used nefarious means in order to get there. And people are naturally skeptical of authority. But God calls authority good. Now, there's reason why we should be skeptical, why we are skeptical of authority. And that's generally because our authority doesn't look like this. Right? A, a leadership doesn't come from a relationship with Christ. And when it's distorted like that, um, we do have a tendency to be skeptical of what our authorities are doing. But in general, the idea of authority and leadership is a good thing because it's used out of love for God to show others what it looks like to love God, to seek the best for others, right? Um, these are the ideals of these different relationships, but it's meant to reflect our relationship with God. Uh, even when we see it distorted in our world, we can remember, no, it, it's supposed to be a picture of how God loves us. Um, I think it also talks about the heart of submission because we have all kinds of different relationships in this life and we find ourselves um, in submission to others in these different relationships. Even if it's just employer-employee, you submit to your employer, right? Well, Paul gives us the heart of submission. It's out of love and joy and thankfulness 
and finding our identity in Christ, we can submit. We can give our uh, preferences away. It doesn't matter. What matters is the best for others because I have all that I need in Christ. This, these examples are practical, right? These are the real life implications of all of these different relationships in our life that we find ourselves in. So whatever position you find yourself in, whether it's authority and seeking the best of those who are under you, um, or whether it's in submission and seeking the best of those who lead, the the, all of these relationships point us towards the fact that God has all authority on heaven and on earth. And how did God use his authority, right? He has every right to command us to walk perfectly every day of our life because he has created us. But what has he done? He's gone before us. He sent his son, Jesus, to the earth. Jesus spent 33 years here on earth living a perfect sinless life, loving others, sacrificing, giving up himself for others to draw people into his family, saying, come, I will wash away your sins. When we were far from God, dead in our sin, Jesus came. This is how God used his authority by sending Jesus to come and destroy the sin that had killed us spiritually and made us alive in him through his sacrifice. That's what God does with his authority. He shows us love and kindness. He invites us into relationship with him. And if you don't have that relationship with him this morning, if you haven't experienced that love, if you haven't come alive in Christ and through Christ and made him your savior, um, I'd invite you to reach out, either email me or you know, just leave a comment in whatever social media you're, you're watching this in or email the church. We'd love to talk to you more about what it means to make Christ your savior, to enter into this loving relationship with him to which all authority points um, because our God is good and loving and kind and he gives the best for us. In his leadership, he uh, sacrifices for us and loves us. So thanks for tuning in this morning. Let's uh, go ahead and pray out as we're finished here. So Lord, we thank you. We thank you that the scripture shows us who you are. We thank you that it is simply about Jesus. We thank you for showing us perfectly who you are through Jesus and through his love. We thank you that you have all authority and you have chosen to use it to love us and to invite us in and to make us new. While we were dead, while we were rebellious against you, you called us to yourself. While we were those wayward sons and daughters, you've drawn us back, held us close, and called us your own. Thank you for changing us. May we experience that power and that purpose in our lives. Thank you for the reminder through your word this morning. May it change us as we stay in relationship with you and we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Blessings, church.